Welcome everyone to the GES Colloquium, our weekly seminar. We're very pleased to have Dr. Doria Gordon and Dr. Um, Gregory Jeff here online. Um, and I would like to just give a very quick introduction so that we can get started. Um, thank you both for being here. Dr. Doria Gordon is lead sci senior scientist in the office of the chief scientist at Environmental Defense Fund with a focus on ecosystems. Prior to EDF, she spent 25 years working in science conservation and management for the Nature Conservancy in Florida. Dr. Gordon is also a courtesy professor of biology at the University of, of Florida and a research associate at Archbold Biological Station. Her current research focuses on the scale and measurement of net carbon sequestration in natural and agricultural systems. She also works on governance in genetically engineered organisms in agriculture and the environment and risk assessment for invasiveness in plant species. And Dr. Gregory Jeff is the director of the project on biotechnology for CSPI. He came to CSPI after serving as a trial attorney for the U.S. Department of Justice's Environmental and Natural Resources Division and as senior counsel with the U.S. EPA Air Enforcement Division. He is a recognized international expert on agricultural, agro, excuse me, agricultural biotechnology and biosafety and works on biosafety regulatory issues in the U.S. and throughout the world. He also was a member of the Secretary of Agriculture's Advisory Committee on Agricultural Biotechnology and 21st Century Agriculture from 2003 to 2008. Uh, both uh, Doria and Greg served with uh, Jason Delborn here at the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine on the Forest Biotech Committee. So we're all very excited to have you here today and a big round of applause and welcome. And I will put my mute button so that you can go ahead and share your screen. Okay. So I just, I, I was just able to, I think, join through the, um, and see the, see the screen. I don't know if you can unmute me there. You see me now coming up. Greg, we can hear you. Um, and you do show in the list of participants. So my guess is that you could share your screen directly. No, I can't because I'm on my phone, but then I can get off the, the telephone and do it from. Yes, we. I have you unmuted. And Darren, can you make him co-host? Is that what you're asking? So that you can share on your computer? I, I want to know if I. I'm, I'm not on my computer. I'm on my phone, but I can at least oh. have a video now of me. Um, do you see me on the, the list of participants? We, um, your screen is off and, and um, we see you as a black screen. So I think you have to turn your camera on. There you are. Yes, we see you. Okay, then I'm going to leave the phone line that I'm on. Okay. I hope this works. Okay, now can you hear me and see me? Yes. yes. Okay. So I'm still sharing my screen, Greg. Is that what I should do? Yes. Okay, so I'm going to do that right now. But now I can at least see the screen. Okay, and just want to confirm you can all see the screen? Yes. Perfect. Go for it. Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm very sorry about all the technical things here. For some reason, Zoom does not work. The, the NC State Zoom does not work on my computer. Um, anyway, I'm here to talk about responsible governance of gene editing applications in agriculture and the environment. Uh, Dory and I and some others wrote a paper on this recently, and what I'm going to do today is talk about that paper as well as some of the other initiatives that are going on in this area, and then we'll open it up for discussion. Uh, Dory and, and Dory will make a few comments, and the hope is that we will uh, have a lot of discussion around this. Um, so if you look at the next slide. So as I said, what I'm going to talk about today is a paper that was written in Nature Biotechnology, which was a shortened version of a broader uh, paper that uh, six organizations wrote about principles for the responsible use of gene ed editing uh, in agriculture and the environment. And so the six organizations that were part of this process are the Center for Science and Public Interest, which is a nonprofit food, organ food and nutrition organization that I belong to, Environmental Defense, 
which uh, Doria belongs to, uh, Consumer Federation of America, National Wildlife Federation, the Nature Conservancy, and World Wildlife Fund. And so those, I think, are six well-known NGOs in the United States. And um, we are all science-based organizations either working in the food, agriculture, or environment conservation spaces. Uh, next slide. So I want to do some background or context for um, the principles that we came together. Um, so if you want to push next, Doria. So, you know, I think all of us came together with the idea that we all saw a role for gene editing to achieve the mandates of our different organizations. So my organization is very interested in food and nutrition. I think we see a role for gene editing to reach some of the goals that we have in the food and nutrition space. Uh, others had an interest in uh, using gene editing to help with uh, conservation or environmental issues. And so each of us feels that there uh, is a place for gene editing uh, in our minds. Um, we also recognize that there'll be potential societal benefits of gene editing technologies while also acknowledging there are some potential risks. Uh, next. Um, and we all believe that responsible governance is needed, particularly now there are gene edited products entering the marketplace and especially in the context of a new and developing regulatory system in the United States for these products. Um, you know, our idea is that the principles need to be implemented by all stakeholders. So as opposed to other kinds of governance documents that might be, you know, a, a roadmap for what the government needs to do or what private industry needs to do, our view is that these principles are implemented by all stakeholders. There's a role for industry. There was a role for government. There's a role for NGOs. There's a role for academics, like many of you on this call today. Next. Um, we do believe that these are implemented, that they would help lead to social license, consumer trust, and the product marketplace success. Um, and I will point out that these principles, we would consider higher level principles. You know, the details need to be fleshed out. These may not be at the 50,000 foot uh, level, but they're also not at the thousand foot level. You know, we felt that they're a starting point for conversation and implementation by different stakeholders in an inclusive manner. So we wanted to put enough information down there so that, you know, it's sometimes Sometimes you have principles and things like that that are so general that everybody could say, well, I can't, how could you not agree to that? But then when you get to the details, people disagree. We wanted to have some level of detail, but not so much that we can't work with other stakeholders to try to figure out the best way to implement them. Uh, any one principle or any one idea might have three or four different ways that could be achieved that, that, that could be achieved by. Next slide. I did want to mention in the context a little bit that, you know, we have no specific de definition of gene editing in the paper. Uh, we talk about techniques that allow for more rapid and precise genetic alterations than earlier technologies. And so I do want to point out that this is a broader definition than what some people talk about when they talk about gene editing. We are not limiting this just to editing within a, the, uh, an organism's own genome type of thing, which is what many other initiatives do talk about. I also wanted to mention that this encompasses both agricultural applications and environment conservation applications. Again, in this space, there are a lot of people that just limit themselves to agriculture, for example, and we aren't doing that. Um, and you know, our view is while these principles are being applied, in our case, to gene edited products, they could be applicable to other products and other technologies. We think that, you know, on the end, in the end, this is a good roadmap for you know, any technology. Uh, new applications of many different kinds of technologies in terms of social licensing and, and consumer trust. Next slide. So as I said, the paper was published recently in August in Nature Biotechnology. So here's the site for those of you who want to take a look at that. Um, and in addition to this paper, we have a lo slightly longer version that's on the Keystone Policy Center's website. We have a web page there. Uh, we had to cut down uh, the paper, uh, the, the full principles document to fit into the uh, you know, the format for nature biotechnology. So if you really want all the details, go to that website. Next slide. So I want to start with this overarching diagram. This is not in the paper. Uh, nature Biotech didn't like this particular uh, graphic or schematic, but we like it better than the one they, they produced. So I'm going to talk about it from this, uh, give you an overarching view of our principles from this, um, from this graphic. So you'll notice here that uh, if you look at the middle, uh, the goal here is principles for gov uh, responsible governance of gene editing. 
And then we have six principles around that. And think of these as spokes on a wheel. In our mind, all six of these are equivalent principles. There's not necessarily a hierarchy to them, although obviously in the paper, we have to number them. And in this diagram, I mean, I'm going to talk about them today, number one to six. But in our mind, these are spokes on a wheel and you could rotate the wheel 90 degrees, 180 degrees, and it would still be accurate. Um, so I wanted to point that out. And you'll notice that we have three overarching themes for these principles. So one is transparency and access, one is private and public management, and one is equity and inclusion. And so some of our principles fit with either one or two of those themes. So there is some overlap there. Um, but in our mind, that uh, implementing all six of these principles is what leads to responsible governance of gene editing. And uh, so I wanted to put that up. And I'll put this up at the end if people have questions about it. Uh, next slide. So what I'd like to do now is sort of go through each of the principles at a fairly high level and talk about them, give you an idea, context around them. Um, and so the first one is that gene editing technology should be applied safely and ethically. Care should be taken to avoid substantial risk and delivers tangible societal benefits. This would fall under those two themes, one of the public and private management theme, one of the equity inclusion theme. And what we're really trying to do here is we, you know, we acknowledge that uh, that every activity that humans do has some risk associated with it. And so we're not talking about eliminating all risk. We are talking about avoiding substantial risk. And obviously that can be somewhat subjective uh, what that is, but, but that is what we're talking about here. Um, and at the same time, we're looking at a broad range of benefits. We are looking at, we really specifically want to talk about tangible societal benefits. So we take a broad view of what could be a benefit uh, and want to try to see products that it would achieve that. Uh, next slide. Um, so the second principle involves sort of would be our uh, engagement principle, uh, where we talk about robust, inclusive societal engagement is essential. This would be under that equity and inclusion theme. Um, and so the idea here would be that um, we should prioritize which applications pursue and how to govern them should involve societal input. Our belief is that you can have a better prioritization of which products to develop if you involve a broad range of stakeholders early on in the process, we can get more win-win situations where products aren't, aren't just not only commercially successful, but also achieve other values, whether those are environmental benefits or nutritional benefits or, or uh, other societal benefits at the same time. And that, of course, stakeholders should also be component of the regulatory process. Stakeholder engagement should be involved there. So this is our societal engagement principle. Next slide. Our third slide would be um, talking about effect, effective science-based government regulation is required for realizing the full benefits of gene editing and managing for risks. So this falls under that public and private management theme. And this is sort of what we would think of as our classic government oversight role uh, that they would have ensuring safety of products that are uh, both safety to humans, safety to animals, safety to the environment, safety to agriculture. And so here we talk about, you know, regulators having the responsibility to assess the risks of gene edited products before they're released into the environment or into the marketplace, that that should be based on the best scientific evidence available and tailored and proportionate to the likelihood of the risk, that we believe there should be a tiered approach to align the assessment with the likely risk associated with a gene edited product. So we're not suggesting that all gene edited products get the same level of oversight. Some could get very little or no oversight, depending on their potential risk, and others might have uh, significant oversight. Um, we do say that, you know, re regulatory risk assessment should investigate the potential impacts of these products, and we shouldn't necessarily assume that these products are fully analogous to those derived from conventional breeding. Um, and, you know, one of the things we want to do is uh, we want to balance the regulatory system, but we also want to get the benefits. And so we want to make sure that any regulatory system is both timely and efficient so that we can access those benefits. I think a lot of that, our thoughts there came from the fact that, you know, for many genetically modified crops, the regulatory system takes a long time and can be very expensive and that we've had less beneficial products and clearly less societal beneficial products because of that. And so we don't want to see that same thing happen with gene edited technology. We want at whatever regulatory systems are needed and whatever over risk is needed based on whatever assessments are needed based on potential risk, we wanna make sure that's done in a timely and efficient manner. Uh, next slide. 
Um, our next principle that I'm going to talk about is voluntary stewardship and best pra- best practices to supplement regulatory oversight. You know, so we are realistic. We understand that the government's role is limited uh, in what they do based on the statutes they have. And so we're not asking them to take on additional responsibilities broader than what they might have under their mandate, which is really, as we said earlier, about safety risk assessment. But we do believe that um, we do need stewardship for these products, uh, that regulation is not alone. And so we've called out something that we call a product assessment should be conducted before product release. And that would look not just at uh, safety and health issues, but societal, economic, and ecological impacts being assessed prior to release into the environment. Um, we also thought, talk about the need for a voluntary assessment of the benefits, impacts of, the, uh, of these products, not just before they're released, but after uh, afterwards. So more like a life cycle analysis, including post-market. The idea being that more data and more information here can be very helpful, both to, to consumer trust and societal uh, social license. Uh, next slide. Our fifth principle um, is one about transparency or access to information. We believe that the public should have access to clear information, identifying which gene edit applications are in use in food, agriculture, and the environment. So one way potentially to do that is a national registry of gene edit applications should be established so that uh, anybody who wanted to could figure out what products are in the marketplace. Um, and we say that, you know, that's especially true for consumers, both to understand and also, um, you know, what understand what's in the marketplace, but also understand what's been produced using this technology. And so we do believe in, in the need for transparency around that. Uh, next slide. And uh, finally, our last principle would be, I guess, what I consider our inclusiveness principle, uh, the idea that inclusive access to gene editing technology and resources can help drive societal benefits. This falls under both the transparency theme, but also the equity and inclusion theme. And this would say that, you know, a diversity of investment sources can drive better societal outcomes for gene editing technology. So we don't want, we want to see this technology in a way that it's not just private development and private products that make it to market, but also publicly developed products um, and even products that wouldn't have commercial use might be using it, for example, to restore forests or something like that. Um, And so therefore, we want to make sure that the technology is accessible for that broadest possible set of beneficial applications, that we don't have intellectual property or other types of restrictions that prevent uh, the whole full range of developers who might want to use this. And we do believe that if you do have that broad access to the technology and the broad range of products being developed from a broad range of different types of developers, that will enhance trust. Uh, Next slide. So as I said, this is a a summary of those six principles, uh, a wrap spokes on a wheel with the ultimate goal of responsible governance of gene editing. Now, as I mentioned, if I can go to the next slide, Doria, I did want to first, you know, so what were the reaction that we had from different stakeholders to this? Um, and so, um, you know, I think we've had overall a very positive reaction. There's been some agreement on some principles by a very broad range of stakeholders. We've had industry people say that they, uh, you know, agree with some of the principles that we have. We've had other NGOs say they agree with some of those principles. Um, so I think, you know, we've had positive statements from a lot of people and, and we weren't expecting that any one stakeholder would say, okay, sign me up. We agree with all six of those principles. We do think that this is a, hopefully starts a process and a conversation where we can work on implementing different principles with different stakeholders at, at, at different rates and so forth. Um, we did get some reactions that were negative and I put here a reaction from GM Watch uh, and NGO. And I think you know uh, the reactions that we got that were most Uh, negative uh, revolved really around the regulatory principle to some extent. And here you can see the quote from the GM Watch article, but they're sort of suggesting that because we're calling for proportionate tiered uh, 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 oversight, that that somehow uh, is what industry wants and and that, you know, is code for not having oversight. And we do not agree with that criticism. Uh, Next, Doria. Um, At the same time, We've had some industry stakeholders who have really been put off by the sentence in our principles that talks about that we don't think gene-edited products should automatically be assumed to be 
equated to that from conventional breeding. Again, we were talking about a very broad range of potential applications of gene editing. And I think some of the people who reacted to that uh, have a much narrower focus about what kinds of gene edited products they're talking about. And we're not suggesting that products don't have, that some would not be have the same risk profile. But we really want a risk-based, product-based, a regulatory system and oversight and people who want uh, things related, equated directly from conventional breeding tend to want a process-based oversight system. So the process of conventional breeding or the process of gene editing, they're saying that's what uh, would decide whether something is risky or not risky or need, needs oversight. So next slide. So I did want to talk briefly about other initiatives involving gene editing governance that are out there to put ours in context. Next slide. So one of them has been uh, the Center for Food Integrity has a framework for responsible use of agriculture and gene editing. Um, I was actually one of the stakeholders who was involved in putting this framework together. Um, you can find this on their website. Next slide. Um, so they've put together, you know, responsible use guidelines. These would be, you know, what we would call in our principles, voluntary stewardship. Um, they would be uh, a, a way that they believe will lead to social license and consumer trust. The, the initiative does acknowledge that the products of this technology need to be stewarded to ensure broad support and acceptance. And they talk about six areas in their responsible use guidelines that need to be met, transparency, stakeholder engagement, safety and quality, trade and market considerations, social considerations, continuous improvement and verification. So there's a lot of overlap there, at least at the high 50,000 foot level. I think there are issues about how this will be implemented, who it will be adopted by, how will it be independently verified, um, but it is a voluntary system, and uh, you know, depending on how it's implemented, it could, it would definitely uh, become. It it is a way to achieve some of the aspects of our principles. It does not address all of the principles. Uh, moving to the next slide, Doria. So, a second initiative that's being done is a transparency initiative by the Biotechnology uh, Innovation Organization. That's the trade association for many of the private developers of biotechnology, genetic engineering and gene editing. And they've put together a, a, a roadmap of commitments that they have to increase transparency around gene editing. So if you go to the next slide, so they have this transparency initiative and, and they understand that consumers want more information about innovative, innovative biotechnologies like gene editing, what is in their food and whether their food is safe. And so they've committed to product stewardship and independent verification of that stewardship. Um, they've committed to transparency at the consumer level um, and to stakeholder engagement uh, to, you know, that their members will listen to the questions and needs of different stakeholders. Again, part of this is, you know, how will it be implemented? But again, I think there's overlap there between some of their uh, principles and some of our principles. Um, the, de the, de the devil will obviously be in the details. Uh, next slide. And another group that's uh, taken on sort of how are they going to oversee the uh, coming to market of gene edited, in this case, primarily seed products, is the American Seed Trade Association. They've had put out two documents for their members, uh, best practices, seed uh, industry information, how to share information about the products of gene editing. And they've also done an evaluation of uh, a guide on how to do an evaluation of genome edited products. Next slide. Um, now, interestingly, as I'm, that's why I'm, as I mentioned before, they've limited their definition of gene editing to only editing of within the plant's own gene pool. pool. So that is a, uh, a limited definition of what they're considering gene editing that these documents would apply to. They talk about under the safety considerations, confirming the edits, eliminating off types and ensuring that editing machinery is not in the final product. They have talked about dialogue with different stakeholders and having engagement plans with selected stakeholders. Um, again, depending on how that's uh, implemented, could be narrower than some of the things that we're thinking about. Uh, they did talk about communication on plant meaning out of innovation with consumers, but it doesn't talk about plant, uh, communication about individual products necessarily. Then um, they do talk about you know developer best practices that would have some sort of internal or external verification. So um, next slide, Doria. So I think you know with some of these other initiatives, there's many similar themes. Uh, but I think it comes down to what is the intent and how is that implemented? What are the details? The details do matter uh, to see how these all shape out. But I do see positive aspects that 
that people are thinking about ideas like transparency, engagement, uh, stewardship, that people, you know, I think there is a consensus being built among a number of stakeholders that these, that businesses, what has happened in the past, there needs to be uh, additional engagement, additional transparency, additional uh, ways to ensure that these products are brought to market in a way that they will have, they will lead to social license and consumer trust. And so I'll end just by putting up that initial slide uh, of our, our, our graphic about how we perceive these principles. And I'll turn it over to Doria uh, to have, make a few comments. Sorry, I'm, uh, I took down the graphic. I think now you can, you're back to the screen, is that correct? Yes, now we can see you, Doria. Okay, terrific, thank you. So um, thanks, Greg, and um, thank you to um, the Colloquium for inviting me here to make this uh, presentation with Greg and to share our thinking and, and why we got into thinking, into, thinking into. in particular. I was going to just spend a few minutes talking a little bit more specifically about how this group of NGOs came together and why EDF in particular is interested in this issue, just to give you the background on why um, and on how we came together to develop these principles. So as you know from Greg, our group is a small informal network of US-based food and agricultural consumer and conservation or environment focused NGOs. And we came together to explore issues around gene editing applications because of their use now um, growing in agriculture and the environment. And when this group, and it was a bigger group actually initially than just the six that co-authored this um, letter to nature. And in fact, the, the group remains larger. When we first gathered, we actually didn't know whether we shared similar thinking about these issues or not. So we did know that some of our organizations um, that, sorry, that none of our organizations had strict advocacy positions around uh, biotechnology writ large, either positive or negative. Um, and uh, so that we were not already coming in from yay or nay. And I think that was important for having a dialogue uh, that was productive in this way. What we did rapidly realize is that we all see gene editing and other biotechnologies as tools that may help expand the resilience of natural and agricultural systems to climate change and other impacts, and that's increasingly important. So we're excited about the promise, and we all share the concern that any risks or benefits are identified and weighed or mitigated before novel genotypes are released into the environment. And that's what led to these principles. And we had the lessons learned from the time, from the experience we've had with GMOs. So in that case, despite what was seen as onerous regulation, um, stakeholder views were not sufficiently sought or credited, and environmental risks were not sufficiently understood. Communication to consumers was also inadequate. And as a result, as Greg said, consumer trust suffered, gene flow, gene flow risks were inadequately assessed, and many developers were excluded from the marketplace. So our NGO network agreed that we need the same we need to see the positive outcomes from these technologies and we need to avoid the negatives associated with GMOs um, and that each product needs to be independently assessed. So just assessing whether the technology with which the product was developed would be inadequate, which was some of what happened in the GMO experience. So the result was we started discussing considerations and potential criteria for how and under what conditions gene editing should or should not be applied including how risks and benefits should be assessed and addressed. And that led to the principles that you've heard about. And as you likely know, and as Greg uh, showed when he showed some of the principles other organizations have developed, the elements of these principles is not new. What's new is that most, most NGOs had not developed positions on biotechnology writ large, must much less developed principles. And no other NGO group had come together to develop principles through a consensus process like this one. Working with a group of NGOs like as we did was, you know, each of which had different focal interests was particularly illuminating and allowed us to develop a more complete set of recommendations than any one of us would have done alone. And as you also know, many of the strengths of NGOs 
revolve around our ability to advocate about the issues that meet our missions on behalf of millions of members. So developing a unified voice among a diverse group of NGOs can be very powerful. In the Nature Biotechnology letter, for example, we are really urging that the current administration reverse the deregulation and non-transparency emphasis that was put in place by the previous one with the SECURE Act. And even before we published these principles um, you know, openly, we found them very useful for advocacy purposes. And for example, we have had meetings with the public and private sector to discuss and communicate the need for these principles, some of which Greg shared with you. But we also met with the Senate Ag Committee, with the EPA, USDA, OMB, um, and, and then on the private side, as you have seen. So we were able to use our joint voice very effectively communicating with these agencies. We did that not only verbally and meeting with them and talking to them about our principles as we were developing them, but we also submitted, uh, subsets of us came together to submit comments on a number of issues that were raised in the public arena. For example, we commented to USDA and OMB on the proposed regulation of genetically engineered organisms, the SECURE rule, and we issued press releases when USDA went ahead and passed that rule without incorporating any of the safeguards we had suggested. We commented to IUCN on principles of, on synthetic biology uh, and biodiversity conservation. We commented on uh, what Greg showed you, the, the principles that the Center for Food in Integrity developed. Um, we've commented to USDA, sorry, I'm looking at a list because just to give you an idea of the breadth, um, commented to USDA on their agricultural innovation agenda, to EPA on their proposed exemption for plant incorporated protectants created through biotechnology, and again uh, to USDA on the proposal that to move the regulation of gene edited animals to USDA from FDA without safe, the safeguards that FDA is providing. So we're now growing our group of NGOs and want to do joint advocacy. And so groups like the Breakthrough Institute, Ocean Conservancy, and others have joined us um, And the, because the partnership will only strengthen our joint voice on these issues. So I could give you more detail about why a particular NGO like EDF got into this game, essentially, but I think it would be better to save some time now for questions and see what comes up. So I'll stop there. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, and sorry for the technical difficulties earlier, but uh, that ended up working out well and we could hear and understand everything on our end. Um, okay, so we have some questions already in the chat, but I'd like to encourage everyone, if you are willing to raise your use the raise your hand function and we can call on you directly, um, or if you would like to go ahead and um, put your question in the chat, I, the first question that I see is from Jabine. Would you like to unmute yourself and um, ask your question? Yeah, um, so I really enjoyed the presentation. It was really interesting to hear the insights from both you and Greg. Um, I just had a question about societal engagement and engaging stakeholders. Um, and I was curious about at minimum, what are the types of participants that should be included in these sorts of um, endeavors? I feel like a lot of times when people try to put together stakeholder panels, they focus on representatives from industry or government or specialty groups. And I include NGOs and trade groups in that category. But do these groups provide a sufficient job of providing representative voices? So, Greg, I can jump in um, if you want. We were very purposely not prescriptive in who the stakeholders should be or in how to implement most of these principles because we wanted a larger dialogue around that. But I think we would all agree that the groups that you have identified are the typical groups of stakeholders that are involved in these kinds of uh, questions and, and discussions and do not include local communities, do not include indigenous peoples, do not in include a large group of the people who will experience the outcome of whatever we release into the environment or use in our food systems. And that we are anticipating a much broader group. And of course you can't open the door and have the whole public in a, in a 
productive dialogue. So how you do that, and actually, I think uh, the work that has been done by uh, many of the people on this call um, out of NC State gives us a great deal of guidance. How you do that will be specific, I think, to the kind of product, to how it will be released, and who will likely be impacted. I don't know, Greg, if you want to add anything to that. Uh, uh, no, I guess I was just going to, I mean, I was going to make the point that you just made at the end, uh, Doria, which was I think you know part of the stake who the stakeholders are will depend on what the product is. If we're talking about releasing a chestnut tree or something into a forest, that may have a very different group of stakeholders and range of stakeholders than if we're talking about uh, you know something that's going to be used in processed food that's going to go into the supermarkets um, and uh, you know grown on big farms in Iowa and the Midwest. So I do think uh, I think we have to include the full range of the food chain from consumers all the way to, you know, consumers and uh, grocery stores and uh, all the way back to the farmers. But uh, that's a minimum and obviously, but then I think also depending on what the product is might depend on which additional stakeholders might be, it might be important for a particular product. Great. Thank you. Um, their next question is from Dylan. Dylan, would you like to unmute now? Yep. Hello. Um, so my question, uh, this got brought up uh, by uh, Greg in the part of uh, the talk, the presentation um, that was talking about, you know, regulatory systems and you know, where your group stands on that and versus some areas, some places like GM Watch or some industry, you know, trade organization. Um, and I guess what, you know, you mentioned that the way that, um, you know, the current regulatory system for GMOs is fairly, uh, you know, takes a long time, very expensive, which can shut out, you know, can, can limit uh, the um, one of the technologies only being used by you know those who can afford to throw all that money at it. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what where the ideal balance would be between you know too much and not enough regulation, or if it depends you know too much on the specific product to say so what should the kind of the standard be. So um, I could give you my opinion on on that. Dory may have additional ones. I think two things. One is I think we need to move to a regulatory system that really is based on science and risk, and so and is proportionate. And I think that's what's been missing from our regulatory system, both for GM and then the ones that are now being proposed or implemented for for gene editing. Um, you know, we we either tend people want to either overregulate some products or underregulate some products, and um, most of that is not based on science. And so I think if we get back to the science that's out there uh, and the potential risks out there, what you'll end up seeing, and that's the second part of my comment, we can begin to have a tiered system. And so I don't want, don't think it's productive to have a system that's done on an individual case-by-case -case basis with each product uh, that you may have been suggesting at the end there in your answer, because that is by definition going to be more expensive and lately lengthy if you have to first decide for each product what the regulatory system is uh, for each one. But I think you can begin to put uh, products in tiers and buckets based on uh, their similarities and their potential risk. And so there could be buckets of products that have low, little or minimal risk, and those would be at one level of oversight. Um, and then you'd have kinds of products on the other extreme that have you know some real potential risks, and they would get a you know, significant level of oversight, and you'd have a continuum in the middle, and you could begin to populate that based on science. I think, you know, EPA, USDA's most recent rule, I think they would argue they tried to do that, but I don't think they had the science to back up their exemptions. So they made these exemptions without basing them on science. They based them on uh, totolo totologies, and they, you know, based on the fact, well, their past products weren't, weren't regulated, so these weren't regulated, but they didn't say the past products weren't risky. And so that's where I think the difference is. I think I, I agree with that. I don't have anything to add. All right, thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. Um, Eli asked, is secure cumbersome? Eli, if you want to um, elaborate on that, uh, feel free to unmute yourself first. Um, I, it was really a, a follow-up to some of the other questions, but um, I think some of those are referencing the older system. Um, I know we don't have a lot of examples of how secure is going to work, but um, even under the old rules, we had some cases where GMOs were regulated not for nothing, but for a lot cheaper than the figures that are often bandied about. So, you know, for a million dollars to do a virus-resistant papaya instead of 220 million, which is what an ag tech company might say. So secure is um, probably less restrictive than that system. So is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars approximately to deregulate a biotech product, uh, is that restrictive? So, I mean, I agree with you that I, I, tend, to, uh, I tend to take both the million dollar and the $220 million numbers with a, a very big grain of salt. Um, the $220 million number obviously has things other than regulatory costs associated with that, maybe the whole development thing. Um, so, so I don't know what it costs when the old system was, but I can tell you that it did take a long time and time is money. And if there's a product that's, that is beneficial to society, taking 18 months to go through the regulatory system, even if it doesn't cost, even if it costs only a hundred or $200,000, and we can argue whether that's, uh, whether that's a, a barrier to entry, even if that is the cost or not, clearly that time is money and that uh, reduces the likelihood of products getting to market and getting benefits if if it's safe and has benefits. So so I think, you know, from my perspective and our groups, the efficiency of the system is almost more important than the cost of it. There are ways that you could, if the cost is expensive for public researchers and things like that, you could build in grants or other ways to deal with that. But I think you know, the key is to really make the system proportionate to what the potential risks are for different products um, so that you can then tailor it as you as it needs to be. And, and the only thing I'd add is that the current SECURE Act in um, giving developers a great deal of latitude for uh, in deciding whether or not they even need to be regulated, um, it, there's a much less um, what did you say? I mean, much less burdensome <laughs> uh, and, and by choice often. And while we might agree that a lot of these products actually require very little uh, risk assessment, we don't think that should be decided a priori by developers and have no way of even understanding what's in the marketplace. Okay. Um, Victoria has a question in the chat. Victoria, if you'd like to unmute yourself to ask it, go ahead and do that now. Sure, thanks. Um, So my question was um, about uh, basically the international implications of these recommendations. So I know that um, a lot of the, like what was talked about today was regarding um, U.S. specific regulations and U.S. specific organizations. Um, and I might have just, you know, missed this on the slide, but I'm pretty sure that um, some of those stakeholders have an international presence. And I was wondering um, if there's any insight on how some of these recommendations might be applied to um, other countries or if that's um, something that um, is relevant at this point. I'm letting Greg go because he okay. does this on the international. Um, okay. Uh, so, so the way I guess I want to answer your question is, I mean, the organizations that really signed up for this did it in their national capacity. So, so while some of the organizations there do have international components to it or a part of a broader international one, clearly we, th- those of us in our expertise was more on the national side and we clearly did it within the context of the current you know, current and proposed regulatory system in the United States and the development and opportunities in the United States for these products. So I think in our mind, we wanted, we, we you have to start somewhere. And we felt we wanted to start with, you know, what would be the ideal system or the best system for governance moving forward in the United States. With that said, we think that the principles we have would equally apply in the international context and with other countries around the world. 
How you would implement them, though, I think, you know, I'm not sure that any of us is expert enough in any one country's regulatory system or their governance structures or their stakeholders to be able to implement them in the same way that we might be able to implement them here in the United States. So I guess the, the short answer to the question is, I think that uh, the principles and the ideas that we put out there should equally apply in other countries around the world, but we didn't come, we don't have that cultural or social context in many of those countries that might alter how they might be implemented. Great, thanks. Okay, we have a lot of questions, um, which we may not be able to get to all of them, but Amanda has had her hand up for quite a while. So um, let's take your question now. Hi, thanks, Jen. Um, I was curious if there was any one principle that was the most challenging to flesh out amongst the authors of this publication, if there were any areas that you really agreed or disagreed super strongly on. Well, I'll take a crack. Greg and I may have different impressions of this. Um, I actually think that we were very much in agreement on the overarching principles and that I don't think any one of them was difficult. I think probably the greatest amount of conversation we had was how much to articulate and how much to include in the risk assessment component, which is complicated. Um, and is, uh, you know, we are asking for very inclusive risk assessment, right, um, in, in these principles, everything from health hazard to um, societal good to environmental damage to um, uh, unintended consequences on food supply. You know, I mean, it's it's very broad. And so we had a lot of discussion about how much of that should be voluntary versus regulatory, how much of that, how deeply to go. Do we want to put up an example of what a tiered system might look associated with this risk assessment um, or do we not? And in the end, we opted for the simpler <laughs> <laughs> um, which was not to actually put um, an example up or, or to, to actually craft the tier at risk assessment. That was simpler, but that was also recognizing that we needed more voices in the room to be able to do that well. And so um, I think that got the most discussion. I don't know, Greg, if you have a different impression. No, I think I would agree with you, Dory. I mean, I think on the, on the whole, all the principles uh, we all agreed with and everybody agrees with everything that's in the doc, the two documents yes. that are there. I do think yeah, the regulatory stuff, probably we had the most discussion about, in part because, um, you know, and I'm guilty of it just like others, is we, we come with a lot of baggage to those discussions. There's already existing systems and proposed rules, and it's easier, easier to criticize those or accept those as opposed to think more creatively of what should the system be like as opposed to what is the system and what, what are the good and bad parts of that. And so it takes, a, I think, in some ways, a, a, a different mindset to get beyond what is or isn't possible with the current system to what should, what it should be. And that, that takes a little bit of thinking. Sure. Thank you. I have a question. Um, a lot of the discussion, it seems to me that a lot of this, the basic assumption of this is that people are going to voluntarily publicize that they're editing whatever the species is. And, and, and the only incentive for that is if you're going to patent that trait or that edited gene. But we're talking about a technology that is very simple to do at many different levels without. So why would anyone go through this cumbersome regulatory process? If I need to develop, I don't know, a, a, a papaya that is tolerant to certain disease uh, and I can do that in Panama or I can do it in Bolivia, uh, I can just edit that and release my cultivar. I can actually gain intellectual property over my cultivar without having to disclose that I have an edited, uh, a gene edited cultivar or line. So unlike GMOs where we had a lot of ways to figure it out, that's not the case here or not necessarily the case. So what, where's the incentive if I'm not, it, it seems to me that a lot of the regulatory framework that we're building is still thinking of the major seed companies. So um, let me take a crack at that. Interesting question. Things that I've thought about myself a, a lot. And I guess 
I'm I'm not of the view that that you can go do this and nobody knows about it. So I think you know people will publish things in academic journals, companies, public or private, who make products are going to want to sell their product and explain that they have this you know virus resistant papaya that they've done, and and somebody's going to ask them, well, how did you get that? And they're going to say gene editing. So the idea that gene edited products are going to come to the market with nobody knowing about it, but the researcher who did it you know, in their backyard or in their lab, and they told nobody, I don't think really happens. And so information is going to get out. And then the question is, is that, is that how is that information going to be used? And so if, if it's not made transparent, people are going to find out about it and trade barriers are going to come up or you're going to violate regulations in one country or another country. And people are going to lose trust in the system because but there are some consumers as well as other market players who are going to want to know whether this is for whatever reason they want to know. I always say consumers want to know something because they want to know it. They don't have to have a justification for why they want to know it. It doesn't have to be science-based. And so, so I think the choice is, do we get on top of, do we get ahead of that and have good governance that is more than just regulation, but transparency, stakeholder engagement, and other things that gives people trust so that these products can move into the marketplace and be successful? Or as you suggest, we may have some products that might be successful, but they also might come up at some point to barriers and they might backfire because when people find out that something has been put in that nobody knew about, uh, I don't know how people are going to react. So a slightly different perspective maybe than, than, than you on that issue. Thank you. Okay, well, it looks like we're out of time, unfortunately, because we have a lot more questions that people wanted to ask. But um, I want to thank everyone for um, having a good discussion. Thank you to Doria and Greg for a really interesting and engaging talk. And uh, Dawn, I also, uh, if I might just jump in there, I, I'm I'm not unable to see the questions because I'm on the I'm not on I'm doing this through my phone and so forth, but. You know, I at least offer that if people do have follow-up questions that we haven't had haven't had a chance to answer, feel free to email me those questions, mm -hmm. and I'll you know try to do my best effort to answer people's questions. Um, you know, I'm always happy to engage with people, and so I just wanted to put that out there. Sorry to interrupt, Don. Sure. Oh, that's okay. Um, that's really um, that's really generous. Thank you for giving your time like that. So, if anyone who didn't get their question. Um, answered or asked, uh, please feel free to take Greg up on his offer and shoot him an email. Um, and I just want to plug our next week's colloquium. Uh, it's organized by some of our students and it will be a panel. And in actually in the chat, Amanda pointed out that some of the speakers next week might be able to address some of the um, questions on the international um, considerations. So uh, if everyone could help us thank our speakers and we will sign off for this week. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.